I have always loved the Minor Prophets. I don't know if you know that about me or not, but um, this, this is uh, one of those sections, these 12 prophets, um, that really kind of inspired me when I was younger. Um, so much so that a lot of my usernames were Minor Prophet. Still, to this day, my Instagram handle is Minor Prophet. Um, and, and that's partly because, you know, being in the tech world, being in the computer world, I don't know if you know this about tech people, but um, they have really big egos. And, uh, you know, when Hackers was out and, you know, the movie, and it was like you got the archangel and you got, you know, some people think they're God. And I thought, you know, I'm like a minor prophet. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good with tech, um, but I'm, I'm not anything super special, so uh, that kind of fit me. Um, but I, I also love the mystery that surrounds these men. Um, these 12 prophets, uh, we, we don't know a whole lot about them. Um, this makes up the, the last uh, books in our English Bible, of the Old Testament. Of course, this is not the actual Hebrew order of Scripture. Um, I don't know if you know this about writers, and apparently God is the same way. They can't help but summarize everything in the last chapter of a book. So hint, if you're ever reading a nonfiction book, just skip to the end of every chapter, and they summarize everything they said for like 20 pages, right? The Bible's the same way. Chronicles is actually the last book of the Hebrew Bible. And it starts with Adam and ends with the exile. So it's a summary of here is what's important. But in our English Bibles, we flipped it around a little bit and we put the minor prophets at the end. And we have these 12 prophets, most of them speaking to Israel uh, some of them speaking to the nations. And then you got, you know, a minor prophet like Joel who just has to speak to both, right? You got to have somebody who gotta, does his own thing. Um, but these minor prophets remind me, and especially Haggai, that God can use anyone from anywhere at any time to accomplish his purposes. You don't have to have a long pedigree. You don't have to come from the right family. With Haggai, you don't have to be even in the priestly line for God to grab you and say, I want to use you to accomplish my goals. God uses whomever he wishes to accomplish his purposes. Now, for a country boy like me, that, that's encouraging, right? God can use anybody. And apart from being a prophet, we don't know anything else with certainty about the prophet Haggai. We have no means of establishing his biography. Same is the case with Obadiah and Habakkuk. Nothing is mentioned about his ancestors or his circumstances, or his birth, his life, or his death. What's interesting about Haggai, I thought, as I was putting this together, is his name is one of several 
names in the Old Testament that the root is hag, H-A-G. And that, that means festival or festal or my feasts. And, and one interesting pattern that you might not notice as an as American reader of the book of Haggai is this connection with his prophecies, they all line up on the dates of feasts. So you've got a guy whose name means my feasts, and all of his prophecies come and correlate when there was a feast happening in Israel. You see it in one one. it's the new moon's day, which would have been a, a feast for Israel. 2-1 on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then in 2.18, on the day when the foundation of the temple was laid. Now, remember, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, the place in time we are, Israel has been exiled, and they have not heard a word from a, from a prophet since the exile, right? So at, at this point... God has not been speaking through anyone. There's no Moses telling the people what to do, where to go, how to live. But now, it happens. On the first day of the sixth month in the year 520 B.C., God speaks. And we're given that date and time to help us see a couple of things. One, that this prophecy is contained in space-time, right? This is, this is not just Haggai had a word, right? No, Haggai had a word on this day, specifically. And it was during the reign of this king. So that we now can look back and track down and see exactly when this was. God again, is fulfilling his promise to raise up for his people a prophet who would convey to them everything he commands. And Haggai has the privilege and the responsibility of being the first prophet of the post-exilic era. Just meaning after the exile. They, they have been ordered to come back and allowed to gather together as a group and as a nation once again. And, and this is the first time since that event that God has spoken to them through a prophet. And the word of the Lord came, coming is, is, is of monumental importance. This, this is huge, both in, in historical circumstances in the, in, and in the book of he, in, in, the, in the time of, of the nation of Israel, this, this, the timing of this is huge. Because for the first time, the people of God could hear, could listen to the authentic voice of prophecy. In spite of the short duration of this book, this is the second smallest book in the Old Testament, Haggai may be considered one of the greatest figures in Israel. And again, this is a guy 
we don't know anything about. That God just decided, I'm going to use you. I'm picking you. There was a leader at the time, as verse 1 and 2 shows us. There was a priest at the time, <laughs> right? You would think God would just speak to the priest. But no, no, he, he picks Haggai to, to carry the weight of this responsibility of sharing the word of the Lord again. And this is a time in Israel's life when there was deep discouragement. People were disappointed. They, they had come back to the land, and the land wasn't given to them like they thought it would. They're discouraged. And here comes Haggai with this single-minded and passionate preaching to give God's people a new perspective that they desperately needed. They needed a new perspective on their relationship with God and the promised blessings that come from Him. And this morning, maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you've been walking this path, you've been trying to live this life, and, and you're just discouraged. I want to encourage you that the word of Haggai has something for you this morning. Haggai's command, his, his encouragement to the people was to rebuild the temple. And what Haggai was doing was giving them a new spiritual center. They, they had lost their focus on the one true God. They, they had gotten distracted. And so here, here comes Haggai and say, let, let me laser focus you. Let me, let me get you pointed back to the right perspective. Let me, let me focus you in on the most important thing in the world, the Lord. Without which they would have perished. So the question comes, why haven't they rebuilt this temple? They were told that they could do it. That the, the leadership had said, go and you can be reunited with your people. You can rebuild your temple. And yet here we are, at the minimum, 20 years later. And they hadn't rebuilt the temple. Some estimates more like 40 to 60 years. But at the minimum, safe estimate, super safe estimate. They've been back for 20 years and haven't rebuilt the temple. Now, there's a couple of reasons that the people probably used for not rebuilding the temple. Here, here's, here's a couple that, that I, I think, you know, just understanding the history of what's going on in the nation of Israel at the time, they could have probably used. One is that they had no direct order from a local king to rebuild the temple. Yes, they were told they could rebuild the temple, but the leaders, the leadership of the area of Israel, now that it has been reunited, that there was no direct command from them. And in the ancient world, building of temples is the prerogative and responsibility of 
kings. And though Cyrus, the Persian king, had ordered the rebuilding of the temple initially, and you see that in Ezra chapter 1, verses, or verses 2 and 3, but according to verse Ezra 4, 5, it seems that he had refrained from interfering when the Samaritans and other groups had frustrated the people's plans to rebuild the house of the Lord. So there was, there was some internal strife happening. And, and there were people who were attacking them, but there were also people who were coming in trying to commingle with them, intermarry with them, so that they wouldn't even be a nation anymore. And, and this outside king is like, that's not my problem. <laughs> that's your problem. Handle your problem. And this situation persisted during the entire reign of Cyrus all the way down through the reign of Darius. So second, they, they may not have, they, they may have argued that because of the drought that was happening in the land, that they, they didn't have the, the funds to rebuild the temple. They didn't have the money, right? They're, they're an agrarian society. It's, it's based primarily on farming and crops. And then the trade of those crops. And we don't have any crops, so how can we spend money we don't have, God? According to Zechariah 8.10, even the times were dangerous. It says no one could go about his business safely because of his enemy. Again, there was these outside factors weighing in on this. So perhaps they used the excuse of I don't have enough money. I, how can I do this for God? I, I'm trying to take care of myself. I'm trying to defend my place. Third, they may have made some theological excuses based off of Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28 and 40 through 43, suggesting that they had to wait for the coming of the Messiah whose tasks it would be to restore the temple and its worship. Right? You, you may have had some people saying, well, that's not our job to rebuild it. We're, we're waiting on a Messiah to come. Whenever that guy comes, then yeah, we'll help. But he's not here. So I don't have to do that, right? But we're going to see that Haggai challenges all these excuses. He, he's going to push the people and ask them to consider their ways. Consider the excuses that you're making for not doing something you know you should have done, or at least began, day one. And we see that first in verse 4. When the prophet says, It is time, or is it a time, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins. You notice what the, the prophet is doing there? He's challenging their priorities. He's challenging what is important to you. you you're telling me you can't rebuild the temple, you can't rebuild the house of God. Because it's too dangerous? Because you don't have enough money? And yet, where are you living? Are you living in a ruined house? Are you living in a house with no walls and no roof? 
where are you living? See, they've, they've attributed their lack of concern for the rebuilding of the temple to their current economic circumstances. Let me, let me put it to you in today's terms. Uh, Lord, I, I would give and be a part of the work that you're doing, but have you seen the gas prices? I mean, they're really high, God. They, they went down and I got really excited and then like two weeks later they went back up again. I was going to give, but now I can't anymore. Lord, Lord, have you seen the inflation rate? Oh my goodness, rents are going through the roof. The price of groceries. Not only do we got inflation, but we got shrinkflation, right? The, the amount of goods that I used to get is now less for more money. Lord, they're cutting down my Mountain Dew. Cutting into my Cheerios and jacking up the prices. But notice how the Lord is going to expose all their excuses. In verse 4, the pronoun you is repeated to give strong emphasis, to, to get them to see what they're doing. Is it a time for you, for you to dwell in your well-built houses? So their argument is the economic times are tough, too tough for us to rebuild the temple. Yet, the Lord is exposing the economic times seem to be right for them to live in paneled houses. The argument being, hey, this is not a good time for us, is obviously unfounded. Because the people apparently have had the time for something else. Not for God, not for his temple, not for his house, but for their houses. The verdict of God's word is that God's people, who had recently been delivered by God out of Babylonian captivity, didn't comply with the very essence of the covenant relationship that he had established with them, had they? They didn't love God more than they loved themselves. God has made a covenant with them that they're to have no other gods but Him. And yet, here we find these people worshiping who? Not, not some giant statue. Themselves. Their own desires. Instead of focusing on the Lord and His covenant, they focused on adorning the adorning of their houses with wood paneling. Now, the word that's used here is, is very specific, and it's for a reason. It's not just saying, you built yourself a house. right? The, the word that's used here is a word that's used for adornment. This is going above and beyond. We, we see it in 1 Kings 7.7. 7. Solomon's throne hall was covered and finished and had cedar panels. You also see it in Jeremiah twenty two fourteen. 14. They were doing more than just building 
basic houses. They had those basic houses, but they were, there was an adornment aspect of it. There, there was, we're, we're going we're gonna to make it nicer. Right? Do, you, do you see what the Lord's doing? He's, he's drawing out their hearts that, that I, I'm fine with you having houses. There's nothing wrong with that. And listen, there's not even anything wrong with adorning your houses. But there is when mine lays without a wall or a roof. That's a problem, folks. The, the focus is on you instead of the Lord. And the Lord is, const- is contrasting their lack of concern for his house with their zeal for their own houses. They had both the time and the means to decorate, either to cover or to panel, again, however you interpret that word, to complete, to, to roof in their houses, while the required building material for God's house had not even been gathered. They, they, they weren't even buying as they went along. Right? I, I mean, I get it. <laughs> it it's, it's funny that this is the, the book that me and Jamie, when we were talking, Jamie's like, hey, let's, let's do Haggai. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's, let's pray about that. But that, that sounds like a good direction. And then as I'm reading through it and reading through it, I'm like, wait, I'm rebuilding my house right now. What are you trying to say? <laughs> right? But when you're poor, what you do is you buy stuff along and along, right? Like I, I bought my lights a couple months ago. I, I, I bought things so that I didn't have this huge expense all at once, but, but I was planning. They're not even doing that. They're, they're not even gathering the building materials that are needed. God's house remained in ruin while theirs continued to be adorned. And so we get this challenge from Haggai in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Isn't it amazing how three words can just pierce your heart? (laughs) I've been meditating on those three words really since I've been preparing for this because really this is the center of this text. Consider your ways. What ways? You have sown much and harvested little. Verse 6. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Haggai wants the people of Israel to give careful thought to how life has been going for them. Having their priorities out of line like that. Where has it gotten them? Are are they getting ahead? With their fancy houses? Or are, are they still broke? These people must consider, they they need to give careful thought to their circumstances and their experiences so that they can then determine from them the correct 
conclusions. They must consider their situation from the point of view of what God had wanted from them and had intended for them. And this is the same thing we need to do this morning. I know some of you are thinking, man, this, I got this minor prophet, this thing, this thing's so old. Like, what has this got to do with me? Oh, this has everything to do with you. And it's timed perfectly when you look at the culture and the world in which we're living right now and the current economic state that we are beginning to go into. We have to consider our ways. The people were doing, I would argue, what people normally do. Right? That, verse 6 pretty much describes this is what a normal person would do. Right? They're, they're, they're out there sowing, they're eating, they're drinking, they're clothing themselves. Right? This is, they're out there working a job, making money. This is, this is all normal stuff that, that normal people would do. They, they come back to the land, and they're rebuilding their life. Right? They're, they're, they're trying to get back on their feet. They started farming, they're, they're, or they're working so they can get money. But then they've indulged themselves with eating and drinking, yet they find themselves Disappointed. They find that no matter how hard they work and save, they never have enough. They never can get ahead. And Haggai tells them that they need to consider their ways in verse 5. Consider your heart. Consider your focus. Consider what you're worshiping. Right? We're all worshipers. You, you don't get a choice in that, by the way. You're born that way. The, the question is not, do I worship? It's, what do I worship? And that's what Haggai's trying to, to draw out of them. The Lord is trying to get them to see, what, what is it that I am worshiping? And what is the worship of that thing getting me? Is it, is it getting me what I desire and what I want? Or do I just always feel disappointed and discouraged and frustrated? I'm doing all the right things, but I'm not getting the results I want. In verse 6, Haggai uses an interesting figure of speech that I think many of us can probably relate to in our own day. When he says, and he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You ever feel like at the end of the week or at the end of the month there's just not enough money? This, this expression comes from the idea of them having like a leather pouch or, or a cloth pouch to carry their money in, and they would have pieces of silver that would sometimes be sharp, like literally just a piece of silver, not a coin, but like here, I'm going to pay you in silver. And, and that silver would poke the bag and poke a hole, and by, on your way home, you would lose your coins. You would lose the things that you had in it. 
And, and that's the word picture that he's using here to describe their situation. You're, you're working hard. You're putting in your 40 hours. You're putting in your 50 hours. You're getting your paycheck. You go to pay your bills, and there's not enough money to go around. Consider that. Think about that. Where is your money going? Where, are your, where is your time and your resources going? To yourself or to God? The hired laborers earned their wages, but the wages were not enough. Probably due to rising cost, again, th this is an unstable time, the Bible tells us, in the life of Israel. Prices probably swinged wildly through inflationary reasons. There was threat of attack, right? I mean, you, you guys see this. You, you, you may say, you know what, I don't care about Russia and Ukraine. You do on Friday, because that paycheck doesn't go as far sometimes, does it? Because of what's happening halfway around the world. But for them, this was happening right around them. So there's these dramatic swings in prices. It's amazing how God's word just like, it, it just connects. And from a theological perspective, God is saying to the people that their unfavorable economic circumstances were not the result of just natural inflation or economic situations, but it's due to God's judgment. Haggai's point in his appeal to the people to consider their ways is to remind them of the vertical dimension in their relationship to God. And to urge them to relate their present situation as a form of God's judgment. Haggai's prophecy repeats asking them to consider their ways in verse 7. And this is followed by a very specific command in this verse. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. When God repeats himself, pay attention. Consider your ways. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God gives this specific command to the people to go get the wood needed to build the temple. Now, he, he probably did that because the stones that would be needed to rebuild the temple were probably laying all around the destroyed temple. They didn't need to go find new stones, but they needed wood for scaffolding to set the stones. They needed timbers to be able to make the roofs. And so they're given a very specific command. This is what you should do. Consider your ways. And the way I'll know that you considered your ways is that you go do this. Right? It's very cut and dry. It's not consider your ways. I'll see you next week. No, no. Consider your ways and go rebuild the temple. Make a start. At least go get the wood, right? 
And they needed that wood because all of the timber of the temple would have been burned in 587 B.C. And so they needed large quantities of timber to even begin the rebuilding process. And then God gives the the reason for this specific command at the end of verse 8. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Right? When, When the house of God is back in business, what happens? The worshipers come back. And they're reminded that they're not the center. I'm the center. You you don't worship yourself and adorn yourself and just keep buying more stuff for yourself because I'm the center. And when you remember that I'm the center, you take that excess money that you have and you give it to the poor and you help those who are in need. You love your neighbor. But see, if you, if you don't have God in the center, you, you may throw some change at your neighbor, but, but you're, you're not really committing to loving your neighbor. Why? Because you're at the center. And the problem with being at the center is it's never enough. I, I eat, but I'm not really full. I, I need something else. I work, I make all this money, but it's not enough. I need more money. That's what happens when we're the sinner. But see, when God's the sinner, everything changes. Our, our whole focus in life changes. And that's, that's what Haggai's trying to call them back to, is putting God back in the center. And God will take pleasure in that. This is a significant perspective on the function and purpose of the temple. It concerns God's pleasure and honor. And a rebuilt temple will achieve the status of an acceptable offering to the Lord again, which he will take pleasure in. God's promise is that he will take pleasure in that rebuilt temple. And he will grant them the honor of his holy presence. And that's emphasized by concluding the way he does when he says, says the Lord. Right? The Lord's like, I, I, I'm looking forward to being back dwelling with you. Now in verses 9 through 11, God explicitly states what's already been implied. So we don't, have to walk through all of those verses. He's, he's basically rehashing and re-going over what he's already said, and he's making it very plain and very clear to the people. But I want to move to the last few verses of this chapter, verses 12 through 15. And I want to point out a couple of key things that you see as the people and the leaders respond to this clear command from Haggai. You see those three things in verse 12. It says, The people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They considered their ways and they obeyed. That's huge, right? That's the first step obeying the Lord. 
But then look, man, this is, this is what's so awesome about Haggai in chapter 1, man. Verse 13. What, what's the result of obeying? I am with you, declares the Lord. You're not alone. They haven't heard a word from God at least 20 years, maybe as much as 60 years. There may be some people alive in Israel in the remnant that have never heard a prophet speak on behalf of God. And God is making this promise to them that I am with you because of their obedience. And then finally, we see this in verse 14, that the Lord stirred up the Spirit, not only in the leaders, but of all the remnant of the people. So, what you see there is, is God stirring up their Spirit, empowering them, if you will, to do the work that they've agreed to do. Yes, we'll obey, Lord. We've, we've considered our ways and we will obey. And God says, then I will be with you. And not only will I be with you, but I'm going to stir up your spirit to get it done. You, you're not having to willpower this. You're not having to white knuckle this to get this done. I am going to empower you and stir up your spirit. And, and not only all the people, but the leaders, everybody from the top to the bottom to rebuild the temple, to make this happen. We see a beautiful picture here in Haggai chapter 1 of people being confronted with the truth, asked to consider their ways. They consider their ways and they begin to do the work and God promises to be with them and to stir up their spirit to empower them to get the job done. So how does, how does the message of Haggai connect to us in our lives today? I think for some of us here this morning, God may seem distant. And that may be because you've neglected His Word. It may be because you've disobeyed Him in some way. But for others, you, you have simply become distracted. You, you've lost your focus. And, and you're focused on all these other things. But the one thing you need to be focused on the most. Think of some of the ways that we as believers can get distracted. We allow less important responsibilities to take the place of the most important responsibilities. I've got this to-do list. I've got to get all this done before I can do what the Lord wants me to do. Some of you this morning, you might be checking your farms on your phones to make sure your crops are done. Rather than listening to the Word of God. Less important responsibilities start to trump important responsibilities. 
we allow the Lord and his work to take, back, to take a back seat to our own personal pursuits. There's some things I want to do, Lord. There's some places I want to go. I'll just set you to the side. Just for a while. I'll be back, don't worry. We allow other relationships. And, and again, I want you to understand, this doesn't have to be a negative, bad relationship. It can be. But it can also be your spouse, your family, your children. Do, do you know how many people miss half of the Lord's Day services because their kids are in a baseball tournament or a basketball tournament or soccer tournament? They're putting those relationships above the most important relationship. And then they wonder why, why at 18, why, why don't you go to church? Well, they haven't been half their life. Because you've taught them that's not the most important thing. There are more important things than the Lord. We work diligently for our own well-being at the expense of others and the work of the Lord. We're, we're too busy adorning our houses to care about the people that don't even have a house. We, we rush forward with new goals and new things to do, and we fail to finish what the Lord has already asked us to do. So many times we, we want to bring more recognition to ourselves than we do to the name of the Lord. And listen, every one of us, myself included, we're guilty of getting distracted at times. We're, we're guilty of failing to, inf to finish what is most important. We become so self-focused that we become neglectful of our relationship with others and our relationship with the Lord. I see this a lot. In, in, in the church and in counseling, and not always, but like specifically when people are going through difficult times, like lots of life change happening. I see this pattern. They, they stop serving in whatever ministry it is they're serving. I need to take a break. I need to pull back for a little while. Then they stop attending their small group or their DNA. Spotty, you know, every once in a while at first, and then all of a sudden not there at all. And before long, they stop coming regularly on Sunday. And then if, if I have a relationship with them or they get to that point, they come to me and they're like, Dale, I don't understand why I'm so lonely. Why has everybody abandoned me? What? You walked away from everyone. And when they called, you didn't answer because you felt guilty. But you think everybody left you? You think the Lord left you? Guys, we, whenever we're going through stressful and difficult times, I just want to encourage you, that's the time to lean into the church. 
And lean in hard because you need it. Some people end up becoming so self-centered and, and focused on their own needs that they, they damage their own witness for Christ. In the name of the Lord. And, and listen, here's the tragic thing. And, and I've talked to a lot of people that have gone down this road. They don't even realize they're going down the road until it's too late. They're, they're plugging along and they're struggling in life and they're wondering, why is, not, why is God not blessing me? What, what's wrong? They, they wonder, why, why is life so challenging? Why is everything so hard? Or why does it all just seem meaningless? Seems to be the common theme of the current generation that's coming up. They don't feel bad enough to die, but they just want to numb out everything. Why is it that I work so hard and I never seem to get ahead? I never have enough. So what do we do? Let me give you five quick things in closing and some good news. Okay, I was going to do three, but you know, I do three a lot. So I thought I'll mix it up and I'll do five. But I'll do five quicker things. Number one, stop wasting time and making excuses for wasting time. The, the people had lots of reasons, lots of excuses to not rebuild the temple. And we do the same thing. We waste so much time. And listen, I, I, let me go first. The Lord has convicted me as I was preparing the sermon and showing me all the ways in which I waste time. This is, this is not me sitting up here on high telling you down. No, we all need to look at our time because we waste a lot of time. There's lots of different ways we waste it whether it's our phones, our streaming services, advancing our career, sacrificing our children on the altar of our accomplishments. Lots of different ways we do it. Not, it's not just being lazy. Sometimes it can be being too busy. When, when you're so busy that you can't help people, that's a problem. Stop making excuses. Second, give careful thought to your ways. Consider your ways. When you get up in the morning, why do I do what I'm doing? What do I turn to first in the morning? What's my first thought? What's my last thought at the end of the day? What, what do I spend time doing at the end of the day? And then everything in between. <laughs> Consider your ways. And, and listen, I don't know exactly how many times I've said, Consider your ways. If Emma was in here, she could tell you. 
but I hope those words haunt you like they haunted me. And, and I, don't, I don't, you know, not just because it's October, but, but, but I, want, I want you to consider your ways. That, that's, that's one of the most important things you can do is to consider your ways. Third, consider the cause of your suffering. And, and let me be clear, not all suffering is because of the way you're living. Not all suffering is because you've done something wrong. We see throughout Scripture that God uses suffering as, as a way to do a multitude of things. But at least consider... Is my suffering because of my life and the choices that I'm making? Clear? Just because you're suffering doesn't mean you did anything wrong, but we should at least consider it when we fall into suffering of some kind. Fourth, obey the Lord. Turn from your ways if they are leading you from the Lord, turn to the Lord and follow hard after him. And fifth, remember the results of obedience. We see this in this passage. I am with you. You considering your ways and you turning and following the Lord doesn't mean your life is going to get easier. It doesn't mean your suffering is even going to go away. But your suffering is a lot different when you know the Lord is with you. One of the worst things about suffering in talking to people is they feel like they're suffering alone. That's the only thing worse than suffering, by the way, is suffering alone. But because of obedience, we know as Christians, we never have to suffer alone. Because the Lord promises that I will be with you. He also stirs up our spirit. He empowers us to work through our suffering. Man, I have been so inspired. And I would encourage y'all, um, just, just two people. One, at our conference, we had a whole section while me and Jamie were gone about disabilities. And if you've never heard Joni Erickson Tata speak, listen to Joni. Go to YouTube find anything she's ever said, and just listen to it. This is a woman who, in the prime of her life, jumped into water that was too shallow and broke her neck and has not been able to move most of her body from the neck down for most of her life. But she didn't waste it. And she's had a bigger impact than I'll ever have <laughs> with all my limbs and everything working. Two, and this is a more recent one, Patrick Young from the Gators, a basketball player, played international basketball after college. He's SEC Network commentator. A few months ago, I proposed to his wife and then got into a tragic car accident and is in a wheelchair. But man, I tell you what, the guy <laughs> loves Jesus and he is not letting that chair stop him. He said, the Lord sat me down to teach me how to walk. 
I know some of you suffer, and I think both of those people would be great places to encourage you. So here's the good news. God is asking you the way Haggai asked Israel to be a part of rebuilding a temple. Jesus has laid the foundation for the temple of God. But instead of being built with stones and woods you have to gather from the mountains, it's being built with people like you and me. Like the temple in Haggai's time, we're ruined by our sin. But this morning, God is asking you to consider your ways. Consider the ruin of your life. And for those who consider their ways and they obey the Lord and they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, he makes the same promise to be with you this morning. Now, I love this. Instead of just stirring up your spirit, he promises to put his spirit inside of you to empower you to do the work that you need to do and to enable you to follow him. So my final question for you this morning is have you considered your ways? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. And Lord, thank you for the finished work of the cross, a work that none of us in this room could ever accomplish in a million years. But he did it for us on our behalf. And Lord, this morning I pray that the people here before we do communion and we celebrate the resurrection, that we would consider our ways, Lord. And that we would follow you in obedience through confession and repentance. And Lord, maybe for some in this room, it, it might be the very first time. Lord, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you as they have considered their ways. And Lord, may we come to this table and celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we might leave here praising you for this new temple that you are building. Not, not this building, not even this service, but but these people that are gathered here and all over the world of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, Lord. You are building something beautiful. God, help us. Inspire us. Empower us. 
to focus our lives on what's most important. So that each one of us here may be unified in our praise of you. And the world would see that, Lord. God, thank you for sending your son. None of this would be possible without him. Help us now. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would would just challenge every one of us this morning to consider our ways. And then come and celebrate the fact that you are with us and that your Spirit is inside of us for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.